It's hot. Oh, bubbles. You can see how it's yes. boiling. <laughs> and four and a half hours cooking slowly, slowly. Oh, wow. Mm. Meat, beans, mm -hmm. and soup. And the soup. It smells delicious. Bulgur soup. And you know bulgur? Bulgur, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wow. And your wife makes all of that? Yeah. She's very skilled. Yeah. Very skilled. You can see the belly. <laughs> <laughs> Good cooking. Well, I'm working on mine. Okay. <laughs> so. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. This is episode nine of our 10 episode series about the crossroads of faith in Turkey, or Turkey, an ancient land and a modern nation. For the past two episodes, we've talked with scholars and local people about Rumi, the Sufi mystic. In this episode, we explore traditions of the local people and suss out the difference between culture and religion. First, we'll speak with Pinar Beyrak Toydemir, originally from Ankara, Turkey, but now living in the Salt Lake City, Utah area. We'll also sit down with Zeki Tulak, who served as our guide in Cappadocia and eat a traditional meal with Musafar and Esengil Arslan, organic farmers in the village of Avahi. And I'll discuss Turkish music with Vefa Bowen, who also performs with a Turkish folk band called Keçi in the Salt Lake City area. Thank you. I am Muzo, Muzaffer long name. And short, short name is Muzo. Muzo. Yeah. I'm Steve. That's Muzafar showing me and producer Heather Bigley the family tandoor oven in the opening clip of the episode. We all know about tandoor ovens in India, but we didn't expect to see one in Turkey. Yet it's quite a traditional way of cooking in the region. Muzafar and Esengol make us an elaborate meal drawn from their farm and their kitchen garden, a square of raised beds in the courtyard of their home. Wow. And your garden, it looks like you're growing some mint. Yeah, mint. Mm, that smells good. Fresh mint. Yeah. And the tulips, the traditional yeah. Turkey <laughs> flowers. It's beautiful. And lettuce. Yeah. Lettuce. And just the grapes over your head. I mean, it's a grapevine just about to sprout. This be beautiful in summer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. How long has your family lived here? His grandfather, his uncle, his father, they lived together. When the population was 17, they decided to separate the house of his <laughs> uncle. So how many live here now? Just five. Just five. They're waiting for their sons to be married. Then after they need to separate the house for them as well. So how many children do you have? Four children. Four. Two boys, two girls. Two boys, two girls. Perfect. And were your parents and your family from this area too? Ablasının ailende aslen bu köyden mi? Annem Maraş'tan gelme. Annem buraya geldi. Her mother's side is from southeastern part of our country. It's called as Maraş. She comes from Babam buralı. Her father is originally from this village. Okay, wow. Is that how your families knew each other to arrange the marriage? She was just my neighbor, actually. He didn't want to let for her to go to any foreigner, so that's why he just wanted to Very smart man, that's very smart. Nice. And how many years have you been married? Uh, 32 years. 32? Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. That's wonderful. 
Very nice. We enter their house and remove our shoes before being led to the formal dining room. We sit on a padded purple banquette with a low table rolled into place, to which Musafar and Essengul brought course after course of carefully prepared dishes. Our guide Seki translates, tells us about the food, and also helps us with local etiquette. Here are the starters. I mean, the starters are very common to see in this village. Mm-hmm. And also most of the starters, all the starters, what we have in here are made by the lady. Soup, are you okay for soup? Yes. That's amazing. What's in chorba? Chorba is bulgur. The name of this soup is called this tandoori soup. It's inside. I mean, we have bulgur, correct with tomato sauce and oil. According to our traditional culture, uh, it's good for you to start. I mean, they just like to wait for you to start to eat okay. it. Otherwise, we cannot start. Okay. <laughs> All day we can look at each other otherwise, okay. if you don't eat it. Good. Well, we'll try and be polite. Thank I you. Thank you. And so we ate the bulgur soup, tomato and cucumber salad, and stuffed grape leaves, and a roasted eggplant puree. We also tried chikofte, which is raw minced meat, very heavily spiced, mixed with bulgur and shaped into meatballs, and rice and bread and beans, and that slowly cooked meat from the tandoor oven. Food is important to Turkish life. I had a chance to speak with Pinar Beyrak Toydemir about Turkish culture. She emigrated to the U.S. 20 years ago, already holding an MD and a PhD from Ankara University. Her research specialty is molecular genetics, but she talked to me about her favorite foods from her childhood. My grandma um, used to make a special kind of uh, börek. When we call börek in Turkish, it means dough with something inside. Mm. It's like a bread kind of a thing, but it's a little different than bread because it could be different shape and it's less dough and lots of stuffed uh, dough in a way. So the, my grandma um, used to do uh, this burek with, um, with uh, walnut inside and uh, smashed walnut and then she used to like you know roll it and make it a little spill and then um, yeah I do remember. Do you ever make that? I do. I do. <laughs> I love cooking so that's my <laughs> one of the hobbies that uh, uh, that's why I actually um, do, I do her recipe and do the same one, so. Is there such thing as a national Turkish food? <laughs> if you ask Americans, people say, well, they eat hamburgers. Yeah. Well, we do. So many. <laughs> so many of them. I mean, it's, uh, if you go outside and then eat in the restaurants, the food are different than you eat in home. Mm-hmm. So they are quite different because some foods like a kebab, you know, you've been probably hearing that. And most people don't make kebab in home because it's not easy to make and it's always better when you eat in the restaurant. And those are the outside restaurant food that maybe you can call as a Turkish food. But then also there are homemade um, foods that I would call as a Turkish food too like dolma, uh, stuffed uh, grapes, uh, grape, stuffed grape, <laughs> and then also burek and, of course, baklava. So you will think, oh, maybe those are Greek or, you know, other national nations do that too, but I think every nation's claim their own style to make that, so that's what we do too. <laughs> what role does food play in, in Turkish family life? Um, yeah, the food is the... Um, food is everything. <laughs> I actually asked this question to my son because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to see his uh, point of uh, you as well. He really loves, um, my younger son, he really loves um, food and loves cooking. And he told me, mom, food is everything for Turkish people. And which, which is really tr- true. And um, 
we love um, we love uh, gathering around the food. So I think we always find a reason to like um, to gather in that the food is just in the center always like really glue us in a way <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the things that is is interesting for Turkish people they love uh, feeding guests so and guests has to be feed very well and they have to be filled to the brim you know <laughs> and um, the guests cannot say I'm full so in Turkey so you have to eat <laughs> sorry <laughs> when you're going to Turkey you will you will really see that it's really uh, pleasing the guests and making them the best food that they they cook it's it's very very important so food is is everything I would say there are many foods that are it's it's really traditional but one of them is really interesting in terms of um, historical perspective that's called ashure and um, that's a kind of dessert and that's uh, that dessert represents the friendship and and also um, um, yeah I would say it's more represents the friendship when we cook this dessert we do lots of um, quite high amounts and in, even we are here we still do that and then we give to the, our neighbors uh, um, this is in the traditional um, in certain times of the day a, a year you cook that uh, this ashure which is the 10th day of the uh, Muharram month um, it's the beginning of the Islamic calendar, actually. That's that's what it's called. And um, the base on the story is that Noah um, is in the in the there in in his ship. It's ending of that uh, the the trips. There is not much food left, and um, there are only uh, foods of the grains and some some fruits, maybe uh, dry fruits. And then Noah make this um, dish that um, combining all of these ingredients and which is the grains and little uh, sugar and some um, uh, some of the nuts and then feel, uh, feed the crew and then made it to the um, you know the end of the his uh, his trip and that's what uh, this uh, dish uh, represents of and that's why we make this and call this a friendship uh, of the food. Yes, you heard that correctly. Turkish families are preparing a dessert that tradition says comes from Noah's Ark. Turkey is the home of Mount Ararat, after all, in the east of the country, called the landing spot of Noah's Ark. And grandmas have been handing down for centuries this recipe called Noah's Pudding. I also asked Pinar about how Turkey has changed over the last 100 years, especially for women, to go from the Ottoman's Islamic State to Ataturk's secular nation. Starting from when Ataturk um, gave uh, women rights, right, mm -hmm. in 1926. So he gave the equality to women uh, with men in 1926, which really earlier than many other countries, yes. as you can imagine. And if you imagine the time that um, the Turkey in 1926, probably won't, but it's um, after the war and it's been really poor country and it's been trying to uh, modernize, right? And modernize in trying to be one of the European countries in, in equality, in lifestyle, in all, all of those. And um, I guess those changes probably I couldn't see because I born later. <laughs> uh, but I can see my grandma, how he, she grew up and how my mom grew up and how I grew up. So it's so different that I can tell the changes. Just looking at and compare my grandma um, grow up in me, um, then that tells quite a bit, actually, uh, the changes in... For instance, you're a medical doctor and a researcher yeah. and a teacher at a university. Would she have had that option, your grandmother? So... She, probably she could uh, because um, the, the if but probably was probably was extremely difficult. You could be very extreme to able to do that because my grandma's um, parents were not really um, uh, educated 
and then what were not in um, reach or anything that um, that they could send my grandma to the school. Mm. Um, she was extremely smart person. She could do math very well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, however, she didn't have chance, like you said, that uh, she could go to the the school. But um, same same thing for my mom also because my grand. Uh, mine, my uh, granddad didn't uh, didn't have chance to uh, live like educated in universities. I, I am the, actually the first one in my family mm. go to university, and um, they put everything for me to I can do that. You know, they helped me so much, and uh, to able to me going to university. But um, they didn't have chance to do it. Even you know, women rising came 1926. But um, it doesn't happen in a day, right? It right. takes a long time. The the patriotical traditional lifestyle can can shift it to to the you know modernized um, modernized the lifestyle that the women can have a say in their life and can make a decision what education she can do or who can she marry and things mm. like that so it took um, probably so many years to be able to do that and i'm the luckiest generation i would say i've been away 20 years from turkey and um, when you are away so long um, you start uh, missing so many mm. things and details and when you live in turkey you want to be more um, more a world person. You want to be belong to the world, not only to Turkey, right? And um, but when you are here and so long, you're living out of your country. Um, your Turkish side is becoming more. <laughs> mm. uh, and I, I've been missing so many things, and and that's one of the reasons that uh, I. Uh, found this uh, association, Turkish American Association, that I wanted to bring the people together and uh, feel that they are even thousands of miles away from their home. They still have people they can be together and get rid of all that missing feeling a little bit, <laughs> at least. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. After our meal with Muzaffar and Essengol, Heather made a traditional dessert with Essengol. Our whole crew, in fact, crowded into their kitchen to watch her make helva, a dish made from wheat browned in sunflower oil and then mixed with milk and grape molasses. Okay. I hear it sizzle. And then... I can mix. I'm a good mixer. The helva smelled nutty, perfuming the whole kitchen. And Essengol continued to instruct Heather on how to finish the dish, presenting it on small dessert plates with a drizzle of grape molasses. All these simple ingredients appear much more miraculous when you consider that they grind their own wheat, milked their own cows, pressed their own sunflowers, and made the molasses from their own grapes, all to offer this traditional dessert to us. Once the halva was done, we sat down again in the dining room and talked more with Musafar and Essengol about their life and faith. So how do children learn about faith in the society? Is it something that the parents teach? First from the family, then from school, and the mosque, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, what was something that was really important for you to teach your children about God? What did you really want them to know? When they have good manners, they already live our religion. When they grow up with good manners, there's no problem. That's why, especially in middle school, we choose an Imam Hatib middle school and high school so they could receive better education there as a reinforcement. They grew up the way we wanted. They don't have any bad habits. 
when you're busy every day, you you have a lot of work in the home, or if you're out and you're on your farm and you're working in the middle of the day and it's time for the call to prayer, are people excused from those prayers if they're in the middle of work, or what do people do? Sometimes when you're in the field, you may not have the cleanliness required. You can combine and perform the prayer. Are most people in the village observant of religion, and has that changed over time since you've lived here? The way of life does change. Due to financial constraints, there was nothing before. But now, as people find money, they can change. We don't need to explain this in the present day. It's the same in the villages, too. I often pray like this, for example, if I'm going to make a lot of money, I say, if having a lot of money means I won't recognize my closest friend Zeki, then may Allah not grant me that money. Because first, a person needs respect, companionship, and friends. I've only read a little bit of the Quran, but it talks about how God is merciful. And that is so beautiful to me. Is there something about God like that that you love? His being forgiving? Despite everything, we repent and Allah forgives us, God willing. When she reads the Quran, she feels more spiritually in touch. When I was very young, I attended courses, but I couldn't fully learn at that time. After I got married and came here, I attended courses again and learned there. You mentioned that you read the Quran every day. Are there certain parts that mean the most to you? Surah Yasin, Surah Mulk. I love them because I read them more often. Usually after reciting Surah Ilas and Surah Fatiha for the souls of our deceased, we recite Surah Yasin. For example, for 40 days we recited Surah Yasin after our mother passed away. So in terms of supplication, these chapters are more helpful. We already recite what we have memorized, but since we don't have this one memorized, we don't know its Arabic meaning, but we can refer to the translation in Turkish. Generally, they, like the rest of the Turkish people, they also read in Arabic, and most of the Turkish people, to be honest, they do not understand the meaning of that. Just we believe that, they believe that actually is a holy chapter, they heard that as a holy chapter, so that's why they just try to read it. When you were growing up, you learned about God, but what do you see as you get older? Do you see God working in your life? Do you feel that He blesses you or He guides you? Of course, when people are young, they feel death is somewhat distant. It's also related to a person's faith. As Muslims get older and death approaches, they generally become more inclined to worship. For example, my mother, may Allah have mercy on her, when she was alive, we could recite six, seven, eight, sometimes ten hatim, complete recitations of the Quran, in our house only during Ramadan because she couldn't go to the fields, vineyards, or gardens with us. But since my wife and I were both working, we could barely manage to complete one hatim together. I was reminded of the recitation of the Quran that we witnessed in Nevshahir from Jamal Hosta, how the recitation wasn't as if someone was simply thinking about which word came next, but instead the recitation was like a performance or a song. I imagined this good couple chanting together the words of Surah Yasin, which is known as the heart of the Quran, and ends with this. He will revive them who brought them forth the first time, and he knows every creation. Who made for you fire from the green tree, and behold, you kindle from it. Is not he who created the heavens and the earth able to create the like thereof? Yea, indeed, he is the knowing creator. His command when he desires a thing is only to say it, be, and it is. So glory be to him in whose hand lies the dominion of all things and unto whom you shall be returned. Have you been able to perform the Hajj? For Hajj, you know there's a quota. This year would have been our eighth year. I registered and for eight years we have been on the waiting list. So we're still waiting. If we don't get selected in the lottery in the 10th year, then we'll consider Umrah. It's about destiny and fate. 
If you don't know, the Hajj is the sacred pilgrimage to Mecca that all Muslims are commanded to perform if they can afford it. But the Hajj has to take place during a set four days of the year, and only a certain number of believers are allowed into Saudi Arabia for the event. So many people travel to Mecca in the off-season, as it were, and this is what is called Umrah. So when you think of the future, what is it that you hope for your grandchildren? What do you want their lives to be like? Well, we want a healthy and peaceful world for our children. You see, there are wars, earthquakes, disasters. So for both our grandchildren and our own children, we always pray for that. We think you have beautiful hearts and a very welcoming spirit. We have felt very welcome here, and we thank you for your hospitality. We thank you. If we made any mistake, may they forgive us now. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So good You're to welcome. Welcome. We loved meeting with Musafar and Esengal, but I did have questions about this tradition of memorizing the Quran. So I sat down with our guide, Zeki, who was well known for his own memorization of the Quran, and asked him about it. I wonder, because the Quran was given to Muhammad in Arabic, mm-hmm. uh, people here in Turkey are learning to recite the Quran, even memorizing the entire book. Uh, what is it when they don't yet know how to speak Arabic? What is it that people receive from the process of learning that, even though they may not speak the language and understand all of the meanings? Of course, we talk about the new language of Turkish people, modern alphabet, which we used after 1926. In the time of Ottoman, Turkish people, when they met with Islam around 10th century AD, let's say, they were able to learn Arabic, to understand the meaning of the Quran. In thousands of years, they used the Arabic alphabet. But it's interesting, in the time of Ottoman, they had three languages to speak, to use it. We say that Turkish was the language of public to talk to each other, Arabic was the language of the prayer to pray, and Farsi was the language of the literature and art. So three languages by the same alphabet, they were able to use it. So Turkish people who were speaking Turkish, but when they used the Arabic alphabet, they were able to understand the basic messages of the Arabic or Quran to us as well. Of course, Quran is sent to our Prophet as being as the last one, as the messages of God by the hand of Angel Gabriel to our Prophet. And then after he just tried to share what he received from God to the people as well. It is important for us to read it. Of course, I mean, it is very spiritual for us to read in Arabic, because even in the Quran, it says that the one of the best language for the Quran is in Arabic. So that's why Allah says that actually we send the Quran in Arabic as well. I mean, if we do not understand the meaning of the Quran in Arabic, of course, it can be a kind of a problem with the system to learn the language today, I mean. But this is, on the other hand, is another excuse for people to become, let's say, a little lazy, to not to learn. We have time. It is possible for us to learn it. Nobody stops up us to not to learn the Arabic as well. So if someone really wants to learn the meaning of the Quran as well, lots of opportunities for people to learn it. So you memorize the Quran. Mm-hmm. And you said something about even the sound of the words and the pronunciation, that it felt a certain way to you. Will you tell me the story of that? My son, he is just, I mean, a couple of years old. He loves me. But it is very difficult for him to explain his feelings to me. The only word he knows that I love you, Daddy. But he is not able to explain the rest of the things, how he loves me, actually. But we know he loves me. I know he, I love him. I can say lots of, th- lots of things to him. But it is limited things for him to understand. The same thing for us. We know that how we can read the Quran, we do not understand the meaning of it. But we know the love of the Quran. We understand the love of the Quran or the spirits of the Quran as well. Of course, when I read Quran in Turkish, I mean, it is very slow. I cannot read fluently because whenever I read the inner verses, I need to stop. I try to understand. It is very slow to move on. But when I try to read in Arabic, I mean, it is more fluent. It is like a kind of a religious song. I mean, it's more spiritual. Maybe because of the nature of the alphabet of the Quran as well. Maybe because of the, I mean, the language of the Quran in Arabic sent to us was the best way for the Quran to express itself to us as well. We can feel the spirits of the Quran by this way. You mentioned when we were first meeting you that you and your wife had an arranged marriage, which used to be much more common. And I wonder if you could tell me how that works. 
My homeland, place where I was born, is located right in the center of Turkey, is in the Asian side of Turkey. It's like a kind of a countryside. It was like a kind of a small town. It's a kind of a small village. And the place where I live, it is famous with this kind of culture. I mean, it's not only with my marriage, it's also same about my cousins. But I can say that when I compare myself with my cousins, I was the one of the oldest one when I was married. I was 29 when I was married because of my university, because of my program at the religious schools as well. It took some time for me to finish my educational program. So even the rest of my cousins, most of them are elder than me. They did the arranged marriages with their own wives. I have just one brother. He did the love marriage. Rest of my cousins, most of them, as I told you, they did the arranged marriages. Even my parents, even my uncles, they also did the arranged marriages. And at the end of my university, at the end of year my, of, of my university, my wife, after we lost my father, she was not feeling comfortable about my future because she wanted me to marry. Oh, yes. You said you, your wife. You mean your mother? Your, my mother. Okay. Sorry. My mother, I mean, she was a little sensitive about me. She wanted me to marry as soon as possible. I was making some plan about my future in the western part of Turkey where I studied at the university. My mom in my homeland, she was making her plan about me my for my future as well. Of course, her plan was more important than my plan. Then after she invited me to do my homeland to introduce my wife to me, so not to break the heart of her, to go there, to visit that family, to see them, to have an idea. To be honest, I was not planning to marry. To not to break the heart of my mom, I said yes. And finally, we decided to go there. We just tried to get the permission from that family. My mom, she already visited before we went there. Then after they invited us for coffee, to drink, to have some time to know each other. Then after we prepare ourselves, I mean, with the flowers, with the, some chocolates, with the, some gifts, like a kind of a culture to give it to the bride side, to thank them, to welcome us. Then after we met with family, they just want to let us to know each other. They just want to invite us to the one of the own room to have some time to ask some questions to the, each other about our education program, about our daily life, about our future, what we expect from the life, about our marriage, what we expect from the marriage as well. So it's not a surprise to you when you show up at your wedding. The families have been talking and then you get to actually meet each other, potential man and wife, and get to know each other a little bit. And then you decide if it seems like this would be a good match. Of course, I mean, it was not like a kind of a last... Uh, I mean, meet, meeting with the family. My mom, she was already planning to do this kind of visit to the dead family. When I asked my mom, why is that family? Why is that girl, actually? And her answer was like that. Whenever she looked at the outside, to the window early in the morning, to see the outside, whenever she was looking for a bride for me, actually, she was following the some girls. When they come out from their own house, the first thing what they did, to try to call someone. And she was one of the only one was not busy with the phone all the time, actually. <laughs> she was just going to her school. She was always, I mean, respectful to the other people in the area. It was a reason for her to try to visit that family, to try to get the permission from them to visit it. So that's why, I mean, she was planning to do that. It was like a kind of a maybe little surprise for me to meet with them. But of course, it was not a kind of a surprise for my mom. So it was a reason for us to go there, to meet with them, to give some time to us, to ask some questions about our future. So when you had a moment to actually speak with your potential wife, what things did you want to know? What did you talk about? It was a little strange, of course, because you are going somewhere. A family with a lady is waiting for you, and your intention is very clear to marry with someone is going to be your potential future wife as well. You are very close to marriage. You are very close to get the answer no. Because, I mean, in Turkey today, it's not like in the past. People are free about their own choices to say yes or no. Nobody can force the girls to do that, actually. Luckily, especially in my homeland, actually. Girls are also free about their own feelings. And my wife, when I asked her, actually, uh, to not break the heart of her parents as well, she said yes to welcome us as well. And both of us, we wanted to see each other because of our parents, because of our families. It was a reason for us to meet with each other because of our families. And, of course, feeling was very strange, was very interesting, because, I mean... Imagine that you don't have any feelings to the dead girl, but the marriage as well. Of course, you have respect. But I mean, this is like a kind of respect to welcome you in the own houses. Right. Then after, when we start to ask some question, when we start to do think about our future, when we start to do think about our answers to the, each other as well, 
it made us a little closer to us. We were not very far away from each other, actually. Which was, did that surprise you? I was surprised. Actually, even I told myself when I was in there to the myself, uh, I thought that mom did a good job, actually. I was not <laughs> expecting to see a girl like that, actually. Because my mom, I mean, she is more traditional. I mean, uh, it was a very classic Turkish woman in the countryside as well. It was like a kind of a little surprise for me when I met with her because she had an university degree program. She studied finance. And it, I, I believe that and I know that actually uh, she read more book than me what I read it as well. And her opinion about the life, I saw that actually her world in her mind as well is also too big. I was also surprised with her, I mean, ideas with her thoughts as well. That's very exciting. And as soon as you left, did your did your mother say, what did you think? Of course, I mean, uh, even they were expecting from us to be a little quick after five, ten minutes, something like that, to talk quickly, to say something about yes or no, or to give a chance to each other or not, actually. And they said to me that actually it took approximately 30 to 35 minutes. They were not expecting to take a long time like that, actually. They were already surprised. When we turned back to home, of course, they were really very excited to try to learn our opinion as well. And now how long have you been married? Actually, 2011. I mean, 2023, almost 12 years. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. What percentage of people have an arranged marriage here in Turkey today? How has that changed? Just to have an idea, my grandparents, they did arranged marriages with each other. My parents, they did the arranged marriages with each other. My aunties, my uncles, they also did the arranged marriages. But if you look at our cousins, let's say, 65, 70% of them, they did the arranged marriages. 30% of them, they did the law marriage. But when we look at today, after 11 years of my marriage, actually, I see that number of people who do the love marriage are getting more than the previous years. Uh, it is hard to say about the percentages because Turkey is very cosmopolitan. We have seven different regions, geographical regions. In these seven geographical regions, you can see the different culture, different ethnic groups, different races, different beliefs as well. So, I mean, if you mention about the, some regions, we can say that in the eastern part of our country, in the southeastern part of our country, in the northern part of Turkey, inside of Anatolia, because of the conservative families, because of the traditional life, more. But when we go to the southern part of Turkey, Mediterranean coast, western part of our country, to the Asian coast, if we go to the Marmara region, Istanbul area, getting less. You mentioned culture. And so I wonder, uh, does the Quran have anything to say about arranged marriages or is that a cultural development? The first of all, our religion, they, I mean, order people to marry. Mm-hmm. And even this is exactly like a kind of and behave of our prophet, which we call as hadith, to follow the teaching of our prophet as well, or behaves of our prophet as well. Our prophet, when he was married, he was 25. So, I mean, he already suggested people to marry in their young ages. But of course, today, because of the educational program, because of the university, sometimes can be a little late. Mm. So that's why, as I told you, I was the one of the oldest one when I was married. My brother, he was 21. My cousins, they were around 1920 when they were married. I was 29. So that's why, because of the university program, even today, because of the younger generation, they spend more time at the schools, at the universities. So that's why, I mean, the average age of the marriage are also getting little higher today. So, about our religion, the first of all, it is important for people to become a family. And, of course, I mean, we believe nasip, nasip like your fate, which you cannot escape from this kind of fate, which, which you cannot decide for the time. Of course, you can try, you can do the some try, you can do the some efforts as well, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you escape, but which you cannot escape from the marriage. So, that's why we call it nasip and faith of people about their own partners, to wait for the right time, to see each other, to meet with each other. We believe that even my marriage, arranged marriage, which was not expected by me or which was not planned by me, but it was already planned by God as well. Interesting. So the Quran directs you to marry, but the idea of arranged marriage, that part is cultural? Actually, arranged marriages are more cultural. Of course, on the other hand, uh, has some background from the religions, of course, because what about the alternative to the arranged marriages are the law marriages. According to the Islamic tradition and culture, before the marriage, it is very difficult for the young lovers to come together, to meet with each other, to see each other, to spend the time together as well. Of course, you can fall in love with someone, 
but you need to follow the rules of the Islam. Even sometimes you need to keep or you need to hide this kind of things from yourself as well. But of course, if you really love someone as a boy or girl, you need to share with your parents to check for the possibilities from the both sides to have any chance to marry or not, actually. Even sometimes it can be an exam. I mean, it cannot be possible, but this is your exam, actually, to suppress your feelings, to not to make mistake. I always say that this is like a kind of a mental way to try to choose your wife, to try to find the best person for yourself, to try to match with your family as well, to marry together. But about the law marriage, sometimes your eyes can be closed, you cannot see the truths, or you cannot see the something from the outside of this kind of relationship. Even sometimes some of their parents or family members or relatives, they warn people about their own character, sometimes are not perfectly matched. But then after, whenever they have problem, they cannot see anybody behind of themselves to try to find out the problem or to solve the problem. But about the arranged marriages, whenever you have any problem, the people who met you, people who were the reason for you to come together, like a kind of a marriage coach, to try to come to stand behind of you to try to save your marriage. No discussion of a culture could be complete without considering the music. Traditional music from Turkey is expansive and involves drawing from many ethnic groups and traditions. But one of the most well-known instruments from Turkey is the oud. It's something like a classical guitar with a rounded back. The modern oud is fretless with five pairs of strings and an extra bass string. In Istanbul, you can find instrument shops selling the oud in the high fashion districts and in the more humble neighborhoods. We found one shop along popular Istiklal Avenue and listened to a shopkeeper play the oud for us. But Turkish music today is played in a variety of styles. It's not just for your Ottoman great-grandpa anymore. The Utah Turkish Association sponsors Keçi, a Turkish band that plays in the Salt Lake area and I was able to catch a live performance at the annual Living Traditions Festival. I was also able to speak with Vefa Bowen, who plays with Ketchi and who graduated from the Istanbul Technical University with a degree in music. The singer-songwriter of folk music is called an ashik, which is like a poet who philosophizes true music. And they play balama, saz, and, and they travel around the village and then tell stories. And it's al- always by the ears, you know, Just they passed, it, on. passed on, yes, passed on people to people t- today. The most famous ashik is Ashik Vesel and he was blind, and we played one of his songs in our concert. So our next performance we have today is the Ketchi Music Group, which is part of the Utah Turkish American Association. Are there certain instruments that we would hear the most often? Yes, the, there is balama, uh, the, like a saz that Ashik's playing. It's ah. like a guitar, yes. In Turkish music also we have kemancha, it's like a violin. And there is bender, like it's, it's rhythm, it's like, like a big tambourine. Over hundreds of years, music has evolved and other forms of music that were not traditionally Turkish have had an influence on the music you heard in Turkey. Aside from Turkey bars and classical music in performance halls, there are rock clubs, jazz clubs, opera halls, electronic dance clubs, punk concerts, etc. The music has come from very distant geographical locations, historical places, diverse groups of people, and it's hard to determine exactly where something started and what exactly influenced what we are listening to now. It is lovely to absorb the history when you look at a beautiful building that's so incredible that it has inspired architects and faith for centuries. But it's also really great to get to know people. And I think food and music and all of that is such a great way to make connections. Yeah, and it was probably, I have to say, my favorite part of the trip. 
that we got to sit down with this couple and talk to them and be in their home. And and this brought up an important question that you asked, Steve, which was, you know, what's culture here? What's religion? Um, and as outsiders, we don't know often that difference. Yeah, after we talked with them, we chatted with our guide, Zeki about that in particular because he has had an arranged marriage. Yeah. Which he seems quite satisfied with. <laughs> yeah. And what was interesting to me is he he was thinking, I don't know if I'm getting married or not, or I've got to finish my degree first, all of this. And then when the families who have sort of been corresponding get the two candidates together, I think, I don't know what else to call them, but right. prospective bride and groom. Yes. And they thought, well, they'll take about 10 minutes to just sort of, you know, hi, how are you? What do you like? What's your favorite color? I don't know what all I would ask. I was trying to think what I would ask. What would ask. you ask? Yes. And then he said he was surprised that it went on for like 35 minutes. It sounded like they kind of enjoyed talking with each other. Right. And, they hit it off. And that family was going, wow, they're taking a long time. Yeah. So it, it seems like from talking to Zeki that marriage is the commandment in the Quran for Muslims. But how that's accomplished, that seems to be more cultural. Right. I think we've all met people who are in arranged marriages. And if it's working, we've met people that will happily tell you why it works and what's great about it. Yeah, um, and, and often say, yeah, the love comes later. Right. You start with the, the acquaintance and friendship and respect. and Right, and the support of the families. If it's not working, of course— Lots of <laughs> people have lots of reasons why it doesn't work. Um, but the same probably could be said of our love marriages here in the West with our 50% divorce rate. So, Absolutely. <laughs> as far as the music, it's really interesting to go to a place that has a culture as old and as varied as Turkey. So we are hearing some sounds that come all the way really from Greek times. Yeah. Similar instruments. And you think, how many centuries? Well, about three or four, <laughs> at least, that, that this music has been there. So then you'll hear, you'll hear rap when you're on the street, but it's rap with an oud yeah. or, or other traditional percussion. And so it's this mashup of all of these cultures, including the most contemporary, which is kind of delightful to hear how it's put together. Yeah. Uh, and you had that opportunity to go to Salt Lake and listen to Ketchy, which we never said, but means goat, everyone means goat. So you heard Ketchy play in Salt Lake City. What was that experience like? Well, it was a kind of a living art festival, and so that was perfect to have people there making music. And interestingly, it's not like they were abandoned Turkey and traveled over here. They were immigrants yeah. from various places. They had not known each other before, but they had some of this music in common. And so in the process of maybe an hour set that they performed for people there outdoors in Salt Lake City, I was thrilled to sort of look around and see who sort of perked up their ears like, oh, this is one I know from, yeah. from, from my village or my culture. And then there, there was one that everybody knew. Apparently, it's a big sing-along and people next to me were clapping <laughs> along and so excited to join in and their kids were looking up like, well, mom, the, mom, how do you know this song? <laughs> and then they start picking it up. So there it comes here in the U.S. even passing on to one more generation, sort of an appreciation of that music. Yeah. It's, live music is always, I think we forget how invigorating and how community building it is to yeah. be in a room with people who all know the same song and are singing their hearts out, right? Well, uh, sadly, this happens in embarrassing ways at high school reunions <laughs> in the U.S. when people hear, it's Boston. <laughs> <laughs> and this was, this, uh, I appreciated this much more. <laughs> we can't really close out this episode without expressing thanks to Musafar and Esengel Arslan because they got up prepared all this food, put it in the tandoor oven. Every dish that we had except for the salad courses was cooked in that same oven over those coals, just bubbling and stewing away for four hours or so until we had lunch. Right. And to me, the most fun was to see you, who are an excellent cook, go over and <laughs> ask actual intelligent questions about what thickens that? How do you and how do you know when? And she wasn't measuring a single thing, was no, she? No, she wasn't. No, she kept saying, well, you do it like this sometimes, and sometimes you do it like that, and sometimes you add this much, and sometimes you add that much. Um, and 
It was yes, it was a delight to cook with her. I do say one of the things I remember most from that visit was actually how she lit up when we asked about the grandkids. Oh. And uh they had pictures of their two grandsons um you know in the dining room and just to say tell me about your grandkids and how animated and excited she was to share yeah. about them. And how recent the shift has been from big communal living. So their house is built kind of in a traditional Mediterranean way around a central courtyard. And when somebody gets married, you build another wing or another room. Well, what's funny is in one of our chats, Essengel was pretty disappointed. She basically felt like none of her daughter-in-laws were ever going to um, come and live with them. Uh, they wanted to live in the cities, right? They want to live with amenities. They didn't. They didn't want to be pressing sunflower oil yeah. <laughs> on a daily basis, uh, and she she felt a little. She felt sad about that. I think. I was also impressed with the fact that, well, they obviously speak Turkish, and she's memorized the Quran in Arabic in right. the original language. And yes, she could have a Turkish reference, but. The act of faith to me that it is to learn something and memorize it to be able to recite it not in your native language and not even with a full understanding. I mean, you could say, well, why do that? It's extremely meaningful to her, the the surahs or the sections or the chapters that she recites. And I really felt that as an act of faith from her. Be sure you check out the In Good Faith YouTube channel for videos from Musafar and Essengel Arslan's farm. And next week, we'll discuss the experience of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Turkey over the last 130 years. Many thanks to Pinar Bayrak Toydemir, Musafar and Essengel Arslan, Zeki Tulak, and Vefa Bowen for speaking with us. And thanks to our voice actors for this episode, Eric Marble and Chris Peterson. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Leah King, Katarina Martinic, and Ashton Rowan. Our sound designer is Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like In Good Faith, be sure you share an episode with a friend or leave a five-star review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.